Welcome to episode 37 of the Search with Canada podcast recorded on Friday the 22nd of November 2019. My name is Mark Williams-Cook. You're just stuck with me this week, but I hope I can make your search lives a little bit easier. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the new Google Search Console releases, looking at product results and the recent experimental speed report in Google Search Console, the news on Google's limits on political advertising across their platforms, our new tool alsoasked.com, and I've got some Q&A from a listener about how to best use canonical tags on an e-commerce site, which we'll go through and explain and just delve into that a little bit more. Since the last episode, we've had a couple of new updates to Google Search Console, and it's actually a trend we've been seeing now for the last few months, which is Google does seem to be pushing all of these new uh, features, filters, and different reports into Search Console, which is which is really great for us working in SEO. And there's just been a new feature released, which uh, Google has written a blog post about, which they've titled New Reporting for Products Results in Search Console. So what we've now got inside Search Console, if you go and log in and you look at the performance menu on the left, so that's probably one of the parts of Search Console that you look at the most and it's the part that gives you the line graph that defaults to show you total amount of clicks and impressions your website's had in Google along with the average click-through rate, CTR and the average position. So we're all probably quite familiar with that. And if you log in, click on performance, below that you'll have the filters. Again, you're probably quite aware of things like queries, pages, countries, devices. And there's going to be a new one there under search appearance, which is product results. So what this is doing is it's a extra filter that's been added where you can now segment and look at the results of product results in Google search. So this means where you've had a search ranking that's Google's pulled up a product entity for where they have attached information. So you've probably seen the rich results before where it has things like whether it's in stock, the price, the star rating of that product, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting now that we can pull that data up separately in Google Search Console. So Google says um, the new product results search appearance will help website owners understand their search performance for product rich results. For example, they'll be able to answer the following questions. How much traffic comes from experiences like rich data, like price availability? And the second question, how does shopping traffic change over time and for what shopping search queries is the website shown? As we know, and as I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, it's rare that Google does one of these moves that isn't playing into like a larger strategy. And I think definitely what we're seeing here is Google know, and as many SEO agencies have rightly professed and SEO professionals have said, if you get these rich results, it will help you drive more traffic. 
because the rich results are, you know, they're better for users, they tend to get more engagement. So I think Google knows two things, which is one, if they can segment this in the report, you can then demonstrate that, look, the, the results we've had that have rich data associated with them, like the product results, get, for instance, 25% more clicks than the equivalent position, like normal vanilla result. So the, the outcome of this is that it will give objective data to allow people to make business cases to provide Google with the information they require to make these rich results, which is normally schema. And again, that plays into Google's strategy of we all know we've got less uh, less results people are clicking on, so we've got more of these what we call zero-click results where Google's just showing you data in the SERP. Google's bigger quest to become an answer engine to not have to rely on their sort of heuristic reading and understanding of content. If they can get webmasters to label that, that information for them through schema, it really helps accelerate their plans in in this regard because it drives accuracy so i think there's a definite win there for google in that they've got a way now to help marketers product owners webmasters sell that internally and get money for it something i think is worth mentioning and i i wasn't aware a lot of people didn't know this uh, and it's been i think most of the year i think it was february this 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 started which is apart from using schema to get rich results in Google. If you're struggling to do that, so you can't get the development resource to do that, um, there, is an, there is another way basically, which is you can actually submit a product feed through Google Merchant Center. So Google Merchant Center has historically been where you put your product data in a feed and it will then become eligible for Google shopping ads so that's when you do a google search and you see all the shopping results where that that structured information is coming from now google will actually use that shopping feed information to enrich organic results and in some cases it can be easier to generate a feed than insert schema so if you've got like a a magento or wordpress site for instance an e-commerce site and you haven't got a way out of the box to to label all of the product schema there is normally a plugin that will either be free or very cheap that will generate these product feeds from the database for you so just doing that and submitting that feed to google merchant center and i'll highlight you don't actually have to do any kind of ad spend just giving google that verified and labeled information can actually give you those rich results so that that's like a shortcut if you're having issue. So that's a cool new feature in Google Search Console. Before this, so this was like in the last week, Google released this, and about just over two weeks ago now, so I think it was the 6th of November I saw, Google announced they have released some experimental speed data within Google Search Console. And I mentioned this really quickly because I'd just seen it in the podcast before last, the episode before last, when we had the chat with Andrew Smith, uh, the ex-Expedia Cheap Flights eDreams SEO that was talking about big site SEO. I mentioned this to him and asked him if he'd seen it. And this was to do with the new speed reports in, in Google Search Console. And I really, really like these. So site speed, um, 
I think, to be honest, is maybe a little bit over-egged in terms of SEO. Um, certainly not in terms of the user experience. I think site speed is really, really important. There's a really uh, neat site called WPOstats.com, which is Web uh, Performance Optimization Stats.com, WPOstats.com. And this gives loads of sound bites of case studies of how revenues and conversions were increased by improving site performance, i.e. site speed. And there's some really interesting cases from big companies there where they've increased performance, page load speeds by fractions of a second and seen objective, measurable improvements in conversion and sales. The feedback I've, well, from my own experience and what I've heard Google say is they will use site speed on a preliminary basis, i.e. if your site is awful, so it's taking like 20 seconds to load, of course that's going to have an impact. If it's slow, but still within the realm of reason, it's really, it seems to be used as a tiebreaker. So if two sites, you know, the backlink profiles are quite equal, the content seems to be um, on par with each other, they might start using things like HTTPS signals or site speed to to get that result off the fence because they can deliver the best result then to the user um, but as i say it is more important overall with the, the user experience so obviously everyone's been focusing on site speed performance i think really heavily the last 12 months in the seo community and it's a really thorny issue because firstly there's a whole selection of different tools we can use to measure site speed and all of those tools whether you use GT metrics, whether you use uh, Lighthouse, whether you use Pingdom, all of these tools will give you different results in terms of speed. And actually the same tools will give you different results, especially if you're just doing like spot checking because certain times of day, sometimes the server's a bit grumpy and you'll get a much slower return. I mean, if you run the same Lighthouse report a few times over a few hours, you'll see you get varying results. Uh, the, the location, of course, as well, certainly the cloud-based tools will vastly change the results you get. I, um, this month, I was dealing with a case with a client where they had done some speed tests and everything was reported fine. But interestingly, when we were testing the site from the United States or from Canada, we were getting regular timeouts and outages. So there's quite a lot of complexity when it comes to, to measuring site speed. Now, inside of Search Console, we, there was a post on the Google Webmaster Central blog uh, at the start of the month. It was actually the 4th of November, not the 6th, where they have released some details and it's in what they call experimental mode at the moment, but they will give you a speed report now that groups pages into very simply like a traffic-like system of red, amber, green, of slow, moderate and fast pages. What I like about this data is that it, the source of the data is the Chrome UX report. And for those that don't know, the Chrome UX report is real in the field user data from Chrome browsers. So Chrome browser can opt in to sync and send usage data to Google and to kind of phone home about the, the speed of the site that it's visiting. So at least as a lumping together generally what is the experience of our users if you're getting 90% of your pages coming up as slow 
from the Chrome user experience report from within Google Search Console, there is a fair bet that you have an issue. Regardless of what any other tool is telling you, you've got actual user data from the field that is comparatively for other websites slow. So that I think is a really good place to start investigating if you have any performance issues. So you don't really need to necessarily start with um, some very carefully set up test over a certain amount of time. You've just got the data there as long as you have enough traffic to, to get data back from the Chrome UX report. The only downside is that very small sites that don't get much traffic probably won't have enough data to actually show any information in the report. But for the majority of sites that will be investing in kind of search and SEO, you should have data in here. The other thing that I really like about this is Google has realized that when it comes to fixing performance issues on pages, they normally manifest themselves on a template basis, which means if you have a slow page, generally, as long as it's not a server issue that's making all the site respond slowly, generally the performance issues will come grouped in templates in types of pages. So for instance, all of your category pages are slow because of this reason, or all of your product pages are slow, or all of this type of article page is slow. And what this report within Google Search Console does is will actually, it will bucket together and group together what it considers to be groups of similar pages. And that's really, really helpful. So you, we've got a tool here that I don't think is particularly useful for real in-depth um, analysis of, of the performance, but we've got a really good place to start to say, okay, we've definitely got a bunch of slow pages and they're definitely caused by this type of template. And at that point, you can start using uh, your, your tool of choice to investigate that. Interestingly, um, I saw some discussion even about Google Lighthouse uh, recently and someone saying it was a useless tool because all of the speed tests there are based on 2G and 3G connections and it's not realistic and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's actually quite possible. You can run the Lighthouse performance audit through Chrome developer tools. So if you open up developer tools, um, and you've got the audits tab and you can check performance and you can actually uncheck throttling. So if you did want to run these speed tools locally with your kind of maximum connection speed and see what speeds you've got, apart from doing a report that caters to kind of the lowest common denominator, that's completely possible as well. So I think it's important to make sure you understand the tools you're using. Of course, you're not taking spot checks that you agree on what tool you're using and how you're going to measure and of course that you know how to use it but as I said that's a really good place to start that's now should be in everyone's uh, Google search console it's an experimental so I expect they will be adding more features to it soon this week Google posted about an update on our political ads policy and I thought this was really interesting timing what with the UK coming up to a general election. I won't read the whole post out to you because it's fairly long. I just wanted to cover off a couple of bits. So Google says about their ad platform today, it says Google's ad platforms are distinctive 
in a number of important ways and this is in, in context to political ads. They say the main formats we offer political advertisers are search ads which appear in Google in response to a search for a particular topic or candidate. YouTube ads which appear on YouTube videos and generate revenue for those creators and display ads which appear on websites and generate revenue for our publishing partners. We provide a publicly accessible, searchable and downloadable transparency report of election ad content and spending on our platforms going beyond what's offered by most advertising media. We've never allowed granular micro-targeting of political ads on our platforms. In many countries, the targeting of political advertising is regulated and we comply with those laws. In the US, we have offered basic political targeting capabilities to verified advertisers, such as serving ads based on public voter records and general political affiliations, left-leaning, right-leaning, independent. And this is where they come on to uh, some of the changes and clarifications. So Google says, taking a new approach to targeting election ads. While we've never offered granular micro-targeting of election ads, we believe there's more we can do to further promote increased visibility of election ads. That's why we're limiting election ads audience targeting to the following general categories, age, gender, and general location. Uh, by general location, they mean on a postcode level. <clears throat> Political advertisers can, of course, continue to do contextual targeting such as serving ads to people reading or watching a story about say the economy this will align our approach to election ads with long established practices in media such as tv radio and print and result in election ads being more widely seen and available for public discussion it will take some time to implement these changes and we will begin enforcing the new approach in the uk within a week ahead of the general election in, and in the EU by the end of the year and the rest of the world starting on 6th of January 2020. And this is where uh, I find it gets interesting. So they talk about clarifying ad policies and they say, whether you're running for office or selling office furniture, we apply the same ads policies to everyone. There are no carve outs. It's against our policies for any advertiser to make a false claim, whether it's a claim about the price of a chair or a claim that you can vote by text message, that election day is postponed, or that a candidate has died. To make this more explicit, we're clarifying our ad policies and adding examples to show how our policies prohibit things like deep fakes, which are doctored and manipulated media, misleading claims about the census process, and ads or destinations making demonstrably false claims that could significantly undermine participation or trust in an electoral or democratic process. Of course, we recognise that robust political dialogue is an important part of democracy and no one can sensibly adjudicate every political claim, counterclaim and insinuation. So we expect that, a number of, that the number of political ads on which we take action will be very limited, but we will continue to do so for clear violations. I think this is really interesting because there's been now uh, Twitter recently released that they're not doing any political ads on their platform. Google seems to be tightening the the net here. And in the last few weeks, uh, the examples that stick out for me was there was a case in the news about the uh, UK Conservative Party a few weeks ago were bidding on uh, kind of register to vote and 
uh, voting terms and having their ad at the top above the government site, which allowed uh, people to register to vote. And more recently, um, the so the Conservative, um, and this is for listeners maybe not in the UK, so the Conservative Party's main opposition, the Labour Party, uh, this week the Conservative Party had made a website uh, called, I think it was uh, the labourmanifesto.co.uk, and they were using Google Ads to bid on that term Labour Manifesto. So they were essentially bidding on their uh, competitive on their um, yeah their competitive their competitors com- political party name and manifesto to get their kind of uh, I don't know if you go as far as to call it fake um, but I think I you know I would feel it would come under what Google here stated as maybe misleading uh, misleading claims or could undermine um, the democratic process and it was interesting that it doesn't appear that any action was taken so anyone that's doing paid work in the kind of political sphere i think is going to have an interesting next 24 months because lots of these platforms are clamping down and generally i think we're seeing the um consciousness of what is and what is not an ad in in the public domain rising so there has been a, a backlash to 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 these ads so i just wanted to mention that as a point that um google seems to be now going along the same line as twitter and it looks like if you're working in that um that sphere of political advertising that your options have become a little bit more limited and it's going to be an interesting couple of years coming up On the 7th of November, I published a tool that we have been working on, uh, not actually that long, uh, for sort of a week, I guess, called alsoasked.com. And I wanted to just to take a moment to explain a little bit about how it works and why we built it and introduce you to it if you haven't seen it. So it went down better than I expected. There was more interest with it. So I on the 7th of November before Search Norwich just kind of tweeted that we put an alpha version up. Alpha meaning that it's not finished. There were features that we would still like to add that we haven't added. And the caveat that everything might be broken, bits might be broken, things might not work quite right. And what it is, AlsoAsked.com is a tool for you to get information from Google from the people also asked boxes so you've probably seen especially if you're in the uk or in the us if you do a search in english for most search terms you'll now get a box in the search results of three or four different questions and it will say people also asked and if you click on one of those questions you will get the answer to it and it will open up then another three or four questions that are related to that question And this data, I think, is incredibly interesting and useful because it's a direct kind of feedback loop between what people are typing into Google, how Google understands topics and questions, and a real good insight into if someone types this topic into Google or this question, what is the intent? What questions should we be answering? Now, 
I was originally inspired by a dozen or so episodes ago. I talked about a really great Python command line tool that was released where from your desktop you could programmatically query uh, the the people also ask boxes so you'd put in a search it would do that search in Google it would find the questions and it would kind of automatically then expand those questions and draw you a really cool map of all the questions and how they're related to each other it was really really good to get ideas for content to instantly get feedback about what uh, what our content should be covering how we should group it how we should organize it what different entities Google think is related or people think is related to all of these topics and things and questions. It was really, really useful. One of the things that occurred to me was most people probably are not comfortable running command line Python tools, installing packages, making sure they've got the right version of Python installed. If you haven't done it before, it's quite complicated. So we wanted to make a web-based version of this, which we have done. Uh, since we released it on the 7th, we've added some extra kind of options. So now you can change the language, you can change the region. So you can do searches in google.fr, in French or .e in, in German. Interestingly, there are a lot less people also ask results in other languages apart from English. It seems to be predominantly English where Google is, is, is using these boxes so much. But... As those results grow with other languages, I, you, the tool will adapt to this and it will provide those answers. So if you're doing a search, for instance, in Arabic, there aren't many also ask boxes triggered in Arabic. So it will just come up and say, we can't find any people also ask results for this search term in Arabic. And we've seen this actually when we spoke about the Google BERT update recently, I noted that they said the BERT algorithm is actually only in use currently in the US and in English and they were planning on rolling it out to other languages because they need to have that better understanding of the language so it's on alsoasked.com if you want to go look at it I will put it in this podcast because I've answered this question quite a few times already which is I've had feedback or seen people saying well we we just use answer the public for that if you haven't seen answer the public I don't know where you've been, but it's a really great, great tool at answerthepublic.com. It's quite well known. And if you put a topic into it, it will use Google suggest data, which is like the autocomplete data and suggested searches to populate all other kinds of searches that are happening around that search term. And it's really great for getting a, a really bird's eye view of a topic. It does not use what AlsoAsked.com is using, which is the people also asked data. And they, they're kind of two tools for two different things. So the biggest problem I see people having with Answer the Public is they will put in a search term or a question that's too niche. And the tool, therefore, because it's using Google Suggest, will just return no data or one or two questions. Whereas people also asked being powered by those question boxes even when you start to put in really long tail specific niche questions you will almost always get a good set of results so they're almost like well they are two different tools with two different purposes so i like using answer the public we use it a lot for broader 
topic research and then when it comes down to okay we've decided we're going to write these 10 articles that's when I would use a tool like also asked to find out what we need to be writing about in those articles so it's free um, it's at also asked.com uh, do check it out and give us any feedback if you do find bugs or anything you can now export results into CSV format or download an actual image of the like taxonomy, the hierarchy, the tree of the questions so you can use it directly in your documents. Lastly, I want to wrap up with some Q&A. So this question was actually submitted a few weeks ago and I just didn't get round to it. It's by a from a chap called Andy Woolley um, and he has asked a really interesting question around canonical tags and I was trying to dig up the the question um, and I spoke to him today just to confirm exactly what it is he was asking and essentially what Andy was asking was he is working on an e-commerce site and he's asking whether he should be using canonical tags from things like product categories and using canonical tag to point that category page to the high-performing product because the high-performing product pages that are viewed predominantly through mobile where space is you know space is a big issue real estate is a big issue on mobile displays they don't want to put loads of content they want to just you know make the sale and keep it pragmatic and functional for people would there be a benefit in if you've got the extra kind of content on the category page to use that as a canonical version or use the product version as the canonical version of the category page. Therefore, the result he's aiming for is, can we get the product page maybe to rank better for specific key terms or for a wider range of key terms that we might be targeting on the category page that we don't want to put on the product page? So I think it's the, the place to start there is to consider what the canonical tag is and what it's used for. So the canonical tag is a hint that we can give Google that we have two identical or very, very similar pages that we only want one appearing for in search. So the most common use of the canonical tag is for things like if we have a URL with marketing parameters on the end because the URL is different a search engine will count those as two different URLs and could index them both and they will then be competing with each other and that would be bad for you in terms of search visibility having internal competing pages you can't use a 301 redirect really because you want to have that uh, that tracking query in the URL to to see what's happening so in these situations, in A-B test situations, where you've got these uh, query strings in the URL, uh, the other example is with uh, like filtered, filtered pages. So if you're viewing a range of products and you want to sort them by price, while the order of the products on the pages is changing, the page content is basically the same. It's just been reordered. So again, that, that applies. You could have that URL index, but really you only want the one page. So this is what the canonical tag is for. So you take all of those variations of the page and you say to Google, look, 
this is actually the root page that we want to rank in search. So it's a really good way to, to, to nip that problem in the bud. Now, I, I said at the beginning, this, the canonical tag is treated as a hint. This means that Google does not necessarily obey it. Been a bit cagey as to exactly what other factors they use, but they have been quite clear in their feedback multiple times saying, we use many signals apart from what do you put on the page to decide if the page should be canonicalized or not. This is something I actually tested uh, a few months ago, I guess at the beginning of the year, where we made a page about two different brands of soda. I just made up uh, made up brand names that weren't in Google. So if you Googled those brand names, they were the only result. The two pages of content were written really similarly. So they're about a very similar product and they're talking about drinking and quenching thirst and giving energy and it's soda. The main difference was just the two different brand names of that soda. Both of these pages got indexed and they both ranked number one, as you would expect, because there's no competition for those brand names. What we then did as an experiment was we used the canonical tag to point one of the pages to the other. So the experiment was to see, could we get one page to rank for both brand names? So we could say, okay, if someone typed in this brand name, they just go to page A, and if they type in the other one, they still go to page A, rather than having page A and B. And this is quite similar to what Andy's looking to achieve here, which is he has two pages that are similar, but still significantly different in some ways, and trying to get them both to rank. We concluded basically that Google completely ignored the canonical tag. So even after weeks and months of testing, Google will still 100% of the time just return that page for that search query for that brand. It, it won't ever show the wrong, what it considers to be the wrong page. And this is, I think, something Google's tightened up on because when the canonical tag was first introduced, it was definitely being abused. We saw things happening uh, like when people accidentally use the canonical tag on every page on their site to the home page, but then we saw the home page rankings shoot up. And we definitely saw some dodgy stuff going on with cross domain canonicals, whereby people were injecting or hackers were injecting canonical tags on some sites and pointing them towards their own sites. I think a lot they're a lot more careful now in how they respect these canonical tags and it certainly had an impact on how equivalent the content is. So from my experience from this experiment, if you want the canonical tag to do its job, the content does need to be almost identical. So in response to Andy, firstly, even if you tried that, because the category page will list multiple products and it won't necessarily have the depth of product description that the actual product page has, my guess would be that Google will actually just straight up ignore the canonical tag. And even if it didn't ignore the canonical tag, I'm not sure that's gonna be the optimal thing to do because your category pages are important. Um, if they're high level category pages, they're the things that are driving links to all of the individual products, they're giving context to it, um, and they're useful for the, the, the category page should have serve a different search intent to the product page. So if someone is generically searching for a type of product, 
and not a specific product that's when I believe and obviously there will be some edge cases to this but generally that's when you want to be serving them a category page so it's like you're looking for this type of product you're not sure which one you would like but here is the range that we offer whereas only if they are searching for you know a specific two inch diameter blue widget that does this then that's when you want to show them the product page uh, so the answer is uh, I don't think using canonical tags in that way uh, would probably do what you're looking for it to do but certainly um, I'm all up for experimentation I loved as a lie I hate being proven wrong but um, I'm always interested when I am and it does happen so if you do want to test it Andy please do and let me know the result and we can talk about it in a future episode that's everything we've got time for now uh we've run over half an hour already i hope you've enjoyed this episode i'm going to be back again one week's time next monday which will be black friday territory so we'll be talking about most likely what we're seeing in terms of search pbc and seo around that hope you all have a great week please do subscribe and all that jazz if you're enjoying the podcast as usual you can find all the links to the resources at the notes at search.withcanda.co.uk